Good evening and welcome to our new half-hour program called Bring Out the Best with me, your host, Rabbi Yisroel Roll. Through our show, we will be exploring ways to bring out the best in your children, your spouse, and yourself. In my experience as the rabbi of the new West End Synagogue in London, England, and as a psychotherapist here in Baltimore, I have found that there are life's superficial issues, and then there are the real issues. And that is what this show is all about. If you'd like to email me with your questions or comments or suggestions for issues to discuss, please email me at facingtheissues at aol.com or visit our website at 12 steps to selfesteem.org. That's 12, the number 12, steps to, the number 2, selfesteem.org, a website I developed with Rabbi Dr. Abraham Tversky. Every week I will interview a well-known Jewish personality in the field of education, psychology, medicine, or mental health as we wrestle with the real everyday challenges facing our community. Tonight's guest will be Rabbi Dr. Abraham Tversky. Some of the issues that we will be exploring during our half-hour program throughout the next 13 weeks will be maintaining self-esteem in a world which is quick to put us down, teens at risk, and keeping them on the derech, on the right path, our constitutional right to the pursuit of happiness, but do we ever find real happiness? Shalom bayis, family peace and family harmony in a high-pressure world, coping with stress, loyalty and commitment in relationships, motivating our children, positive thinking, eating disorders, and what we can do about them. Before our weekly interview, I will share with you some thoughts on how to develop children's self-esteem in a program I developed called 12 Steps to Build Children's Self-Esteem. Step number one is how to combat negative self-talk. If you've been on an airplane, you've heard the following announcement from the tannoy. In the unlikely event of a drop in cabin pressure, there will be oxygen masks deployed above your head. If you are traveling with a small child, please place your own mask on first and then the mask of your child. To which every parent would then say, My own mask on first? Not me. I am self-sacrificing. I'll put my child's mask on first and then my own. Well, that may be the feeling, but it's not correct. Because children's oxygen supply is much more resilient than ours is. We need more oxygen in the short term. We have greater lung capacity, greater needs for oxygen to the brain. And therefore, if we are calm, we will be able much better to take care of our children. So really, we should take care of our own selves first and then our child. So too it is with building children's self-esteem. The best way to build a child's self-esteem is to have self-esteem yourself. So this program of developing children's self-esteem can be also called building our children's and our own self-esteem. This issue of negative self-talk manifests itself like this. A child will come home with a bad grade or a poor grade in school or having had a social letdown in school and will say, I'm just stupid. I'm no good. I can't handle this. I'm no good in school. I have no friends. This is called negative self-talk. Do you know, there is a source for this in the Torah. When the spies came back from their tour of Israel, they said, Venehi we were in our own eyes like grasshoppers. 
And so we were in their eyes. They saw themselves as inadequate, incapable of conquering the land of Israel. And so they said, in our own eyes we were grasshoppers, and so we were in their eyes. What is this called in psychology? It's called projection. When you project your own inadequacy onto others and say, they must see me as inadequate as also a grasshopper. What right do we have to do that? What right do we have to say, they, the whole world must see me this way as well? Well, it's not a question of right. It's a question of a natural projection of my own negative thoughts onto the rest of the world. That was the major sin, says the Sfasemes, the major deficiency of the Jewish people, where they could not conquer the land of Israel. And that's why that day turned into a Tishabav, into a ninth day of Av, a day of pain for the Jewish people for all time. Not believing in yourself can be devastating. And believing yourself and changing that self-image, in the words of Kalev, was, Yachol Nuchala, yes, we can. You know the little engine that could? Yes, we can. So one of the ideas of changing our self-image is this. I suggest that you take out a piece of paper and a pen, or even a journal, to work on your self-esteem development and to work on challenging this negative self-talk of your own, of yourself, in your own mind and that of your children, by creating a self-esteem wheel. You can see the self-esteem wheel at our website, www.12stepstoselfesteem.org, or draw a circle. Divide the circle into six parts. Label one, intellect. Label another, social. Another, personality. A fourth, spirituality. A fifth segment, call it physicality. And a sixth, call it family. And in each one of these segments, I ask you to write down a particular strength you have, a particular koach you have in each of these areas of personality. These are the different areas of how we interact with the world. They build our self-concept. And during our program, over the next 13 weeks, we will develop this self-esteem wheel. And the beginning is to get a self-reading, a personal inventory of your own self. And this is the beginning because these are the six areas of how we interact with the world. And if we get a handle on who we are, we'll begin to find the basis for developing a positive self-awareness and self-esteem. Our guest tonight is the world-renowned psychiatrist and author, Rabbi Dr. Abraham Twersky. He is the medical director of the Gateways Rehabilitation Clinic in Alakipa, Philadelphia, and is a world-renowned speaker and lecturer on the topic of self-esteem enhancement. Good evening, Rabbi Twersky. Welcome to our program. Can we begin, Rabbi Twersky, by asking you to define self-esteem? Self-esteem is a self-awareness where a person has a feeling of worthiness and competence. Those are the two crucial things. Worthiness and competence gives the person a sense of self-esteem and adequacy. From a Jewish perspective, is there a source for the idea of having a sense of self-worth, your first definition? Well, there are several considerations. First of all, uh, as we hopefully will get to, the... Uh, Self-esteem is important in every facet of life, and it certainly is important in Jewish life. Um, I think that if a person has the uh, belief, the feeling, that he is a possession of a divine soul, uh, that he is uh, loved by God, uh, that his actions mean something, uh, 
and that he's just not just an accidental creature who happened to have developed. I think those kinds of things can enhance a person's self-esteem. I see. So you're saying that the idea of Tselem Elohim, the divine image, divine spark, has a lot to do with a person's feeling good about themselves. It should, yeah. Now, the, the problem, of course, comes up, why is it that people who uh, believe in Tselem Elohim nevertheless may go around with quite significant low self-esteem? And uh, maybe we can get to that a little bit. Right. So please tell us, how does one then develop a sense of low self-esteem if we study the Torah and the Bible, which says to us that you are in God's image? How does one learn or develop a sense that... Uh, there are several a... considerations. First of all, uh, I have found self-esteem problems to be so ubiquitous. You know, one might think that if a person grew up in a home uh, where there was uh, manifest abuse, uh, neglect, or whatever... Uh, that that would give a person a low self-esteem. It's obviously not so because, um, as I've mentioned in my books, uh, I don't think that anybody could have had a more caring, uh, secure, loving home than I did. Um, and yet uh, I had some very, very significant feelings of low self-esteem. I, uh, therefore, I've postulated that uh, self-esteem can be something that is a uh, occupational hazard of being human for two reasons. First of all, we come into the world as helpless infants. And whereas other living things become relatively independent after a short period of time, and little animals are uh, running around within hours after their birth, the human being remains totally helpless and dependent on adults for the longest period of time relatively to his, relative to his lifespan. And feeling dependent and powerless and helpless does not contribute to one's self-esteem. So just on that alone, I think there's a, uh, the fact that we are uh, come into the world in a helpless fashion uh, is a factor in our low self-esteem. Secondly, um, civilization has not helped things much. Because uh, in the days when um, people lived in, in much more simplistic life, uh, and uh, they did not have to uh, uh, live in homes with tables and chairs and whatever, uh, you, know, you sat on the floor and you slept on the floor and you ate on the floor. A four-year-old child has to stretch to reach a chair, has to stretch to reach a table, has, may not even be able to reach the doorknob, and uh, the kind of things that uh, our, our society has uh, uh, developed technologically actually may have aggravated the uh, inborn self-esteem. Then there's another uh, issue that uh, I happen to believe, uh, because those of us who believe that there is a yetzahara, a um, force within an individual that is a self-destructive force that the individual must master and overcome, that, too, is a source of low self-esteem. And actually, Freud said this toward the end of his life when he said that there are two instincts that a person has. And one is a instinct for survival and a death instinct, and uh, actually said that there is a self-destructive drive within every person. Now, his disciples uh, did not believe that he was right about that, but it fits right in that if every individual has an uh, internal self-destructive drive, that is a, uh, a powerful source for self-esteem problems. Right, so this self-destructive drive, and in your work with uh, addictions uh, and the Gateway Rehabilitation Clinic, 
has it manifested itself so much so that people want to take away their lives, take take their lives? Well, uh, it is not this type of self-destructive kind of thing does not necessarily manifest itself in suicide. But what happens in, in terms of addiction is that the individual who does not feel adequate about himself understandably feels incapable of coping with many of normal life's challenges. Now, you have only two things that you can do when you're faced with any kind of challenge. You can either cope with it or escape from it. There's no third option. Some people, uh, particularly those who uh, are prone to using chemicals, finding themselves, feeling themselves incapable of coping adequately, will resort to one of the chemical sorts of escapes, to, uh, such as alcohol or any variety of drugs. And then when they become dependent on these, because these chemicals have an uh, internal uh, tendency to form dependency and addiction, yeah, they become addicted, and then it becomes a vicious cycle, because if they started out with a small amount of low self-esteem, by the time they're into their addiction, things get uh, manifestly and significantly worse. Right, so... Less than addictions, meaning when people have a manifestation of this low self-esteem problem, uh, not so far as getting into an addiction, but are there other performance-related ideas or symptoms of low self-esteem? Well, in one of my books I stated that if we set aside those particular emotional disorders that we feel are biochemical, such as bipolar disease and others, and we deal with those that are primarily psychological, I think that all of them can be traced significantly to a problem of low self-esteem. So interpersonal relationships, whether it's at work, with friends, or in the family, are all very negatively affected by low self-esteem. Let me give you a simple example. Um, I had a gentleman who was a very successful home builder, contractor. Uh, when, uh, his, uh, when the youngest child was of school age and was at school all day, The wife had a great deal of time on her hands, and she was a very efficient young woman. So she took courses in uh, realty, and she got a license as a real estate broker. Uh, Her husband supported this entirely. However, once she began making sales and getting a commission, he underwent a very drastic personality change, trying to sabotage everything that she did. And his attitude became so intolerable that she did not know whether she could stay in the marriage. He agreed to come to see me, and I found that the solution, that the problem was very simple. Although he was a very fine person, his self-image was very poor. His self-esteem was so poor that he did not believe that he could really be liked or loved by anyone. And he felt very insecure in his marriage because why would his wife love someone like him? And he felt that the reason that she stayed in the relationship and wanted the relationship was because it gave her economic security. Ah, but what happens if she starts to earn adequately for herself and is no longer financially dependent upon him? Then that reason for the relationship will be gone. And since he did not believe that he could be liked as a person, uh, the, 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 he was threatened by her self-sufficiency, uh, which manifested itself in his attitude toward her and in his sabotaging all of her efforts to, to make a sale. Once this was identified, and we were able to get him into a, a group therapy for self-esteem, 
the uh, over a period of time, their problem dissolved, and they, they stayed happily married. And uh, he was very helpful to her in her work. So you see, even a marriage situation like that, um, the uh, self-esteem is a problem. I see. What in, about the area of criticism? When when a, a couple engage in uh, discussion about I'm not happy with this or with that, does self-esteem or low self-esteem play into that in terms of regular day-to-day shalom bias issues? Of course. Uh, I don't like to give reasons why a husband may be abusive because it, uh, this can be distorted if we give reasons by my feeling where there is abuses it must be stopped and stop looking for the reasons. However, one of the reasons that abuse happens is because the husband who has a low self-esteem problem gains a feeling of esteem by being in control of someone else. And so his wife becomes the victim because he needs to control. He needs to control the wife. He needs to control the children. He may not be able to control anything outside of the house. So all of his efforts on feeling superior to someone uh, are, uh, come to play in his uh, uh, pathological need for control. And that will destroy day-to-day life in a marriage. So we're talking here not, not necessarily only about physical abuse, but also emotional abuse? Of course. Uh, physical abuse is unfortunately common enough, but uh, uh, verbal and emotional abuse is even much more common. And, uh, of course, that can go both ways. It's just as possible for a woman to be uh, emotionally abusive to her husband as for the husband or the wife. But inasmuch as in so many families, the husband is the primary breadwinner or whatever, that gives him a feeling of authority, and he may try to use that as the, as the control. Mm. So you wrote about this in your book called The Shame Born in Silence, about domestic violence? The Shame Born in Silence talks about the problem of domestic violence or abuse, which was uh, uh, for, uh, traditionally was thought not to exist among Jews. And uh, what I tried to do there was to show that this was a myth and that we have to become aware of the problems of abuse in the Jewish family and know how to identify it and what to do about it. And one of the ways to deal with it is group therapy or personal therapy. Is that right? Well, if we're talking about once, once abuse has been identified, the first thing that must happen is that the victim of the abuse, whether it's the wife or the husband, should seek counseling for herself or for himself. This is not the time to do couples therapy. And uh, it, it's a, that's an important uh, factor in abuse. Don't begin with couples therapy because at that point it doesn't work. So the person who finds themselves as being the victim of abuse should seek counseling for themselves. At some later time, there's a possibility of joint therapy, and where possible, there's uh, uh, therapy for the uh, aggressor also. But in situations which is which are short of or less than a physical or emotional abuse, just merely couples incompatible or feel they can't get along, self-esteem does play into that as well? Of course. As I said, self-esteem plays into everything. Um, uh, I have uh, written a book about, uh, I would probably ought to get into this, about what do you do if you have a self-esteem problem. Uh, so I've uh, written a book called Ten Steps to Being the Best You Can. Now, that book is full of exercises that a person, if a person does them, like just reading the book and uh, it's like taking a prescription from a doctor and not, uh, not getting it filled or taking it. But if one follows the exercises, there can be a significant advance in self-esteem, but there may be some situations where you may need a therapist as well. I'm also coming out with a book probably in December 
about the first year of marriage and the problems that occur when two people who are, whether they know each other for a period of time or not, are essentially strangers to each other and going into an intimate relationship. And if either one is coming with a problem of uh, self-esteem, uh, first of all, uh, they may try to control. Secondly, they may feel that they are not being loved adequately, that they don't deserve being loved. Uh, and this causes uh, problems of intimacy between husband and wife and certainly problems between family relationships with in-laws. So when one identifies this underlying low self-esteem, does one have to go into their family background to identify the causes of low self-esteem in order to work on it? I'm not so sure that that is as important as people thought about it. Uh, my example to that is that if the fire department is called to a burning house, they don't look for the, for the cause. Uh, that's something to be dealt with later. The first thing to do is put out the fire. And I think that whatever the causes of low self-esteem are, are of some interest, they may be important, but they're not the first thing on the agenda. The, first, the very first thing on the agenda, the very first thing is that the person should be willing to accept Maybe I am not what I have been thinking of myself. Maybe, I, maybe my self-image is wrong. Now, that's a very difficult thing to accept because it came to me uh, through a series of events at age 38. And until that time, although I had been a practicing rabbi for 10 years and a practicing psychiatrist for five years, had anybody asked me, do you know yourself? I would have said, what, are you kidding? Of course I know myself. I had a self-image. And I was absolutely certain that it was right. And later on, I found out that my self-image was totally incorrect. There was so a... The first thing that a person should do must be to realize, maybe I am really different than I thought I am. Maybe I need to try and get a self-awareness. Maybe I ought to work on it. That's the first step. Once you get there, it's like 50% of the cure. So this new book of yours called... 10 Steps to Being Your Best, is right. a practical handbook, a guide to help one work on their self-esteem? Right. right. And if they follow it, again, if you just read the book and put it away, it's a waste of time. But if you follow all the exercises in the book, and it takes a little effort, then I think that some significant steps can be done and uh, uh, progress can be made in raising self-esteem. And when did you realize, Rabbi Tversky, about your own personal issue of self-esteem. There was a, a whirlpool incident that you occurred? Well, what occurred? happened was a sort of a comical thing, but it's, I must have been building up to it, but this was sort of the, the, the final thing. Um, I was uh, in the hot springs for treatment of a chronic back pain, and uh, this was after I had been director of a huge psychiatric hospital for three years, a 300-bed psychiatric hospital and I was the, 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 the buck stops here. So that uh, all day I was confronted with stresses and problems. I was on call to the emergency room, and I could easily have been woken up anywhere from 6 to 15 times every night. Uh, and yet I tolerated that stress for three years. When I was in that uh, whirlpool for uh, my back, I was in a tiny little cubicle, and just feeling just wonderful and enjoying the fact that no one could reach me. I was beyond the reach of any patients, any nurses, any families, any social workers, any probation officers. And this was just the most wonderful feeling of paradise. And after about five minutes of this wonderful feeling, I got up and the attendant said, Where are you going, sir? 
And I said, well, uh, what goes next? And he said, well, you can't go on with the rest of the treatment until you sit in the whirlpool for 25 minutes. Well, after five minutes more, I couldn't tolerate it. And the next 15 minutes were absolute torture. And here I felt that there's something wrong because I had thought that if I could only get away from this constant pressure and stress and stress to someplace where I will be at total peace and no one can bother me, that would be my paradise. And I couldn't take the paradise for more than five minutes. Mm. I discussed this with a psychologist friend, and we both came to the conclusion that if you were to ask a person what do they do to relax, they will tell you they do needlework, they watch the television program, they watch a ball game, they read a book, they watch a play, they play golf, whatever. They will tell you something that they do to relax. A more correct definition of relaxation is it's not doing anything. And relaxation, pure relaxation, is sitting back in an easy chair with your feet on the uh, ottoman, closing your eyes, breathing, and not doing anything. And I suggest to people to try that and to see how long they can tolerate that. So you're saying not to do, but to be. Right. Just to be, and to be comfortable at being without doing. In that little whirlpool thing, I could not tolerate that paradise for more than five minutes because I had nothing to distract me, nothing to do. And with nothing to do and nothing to distract me, I focused on myself. And inasmuch as it's very uncomfortable to be left alone in a tiny cubicle with someone who you don't like very much, that was the source of my uh, discomfort and my distress. And I realized that time that there must be something terrible about how I really feel about myself that I could not tolerate my own presence for more than five minutes. Mm. That was the awareness that uh, uh, came to me that I did really... that. There's something wrong about how I feel myself. And uh, with that began 36 years ago a uh, progressive working on self-esteem. So in your professional life, developing techniques in self-esteem development through the addiction clinic uh, gateways and your books and your research and your lecturing, that has also helped to heal your own self-esteem. Of course. I mean, anything that a person accomplishes helps self-esteem, but one must be very careful that there are some people who try to accomplish things to prove to themselves, not to give them a feeling of, that, of self-worth, but it's an effort to prove to themselves that they're really not worthless. And that can be an act of futility because uh, I remember one person who had uh, a wall full of trophies and tributes and accolades said to me, all of these don't mean anything to me because... Whenever he got a tribute or an honor of some sort, it gave him a feeling of worthiness for about five minutes, and then his low self-esteem feelings came back. So that accomplishments can do a great deal for a person if they come on a background of good self-esteem. A person who's low self-esteem may go through entire life making a great many accomplishments and may do a great deal for humanity, but nevertheless feel miserable himself. We have three or four minutes left, Rabbi Tversky. Can you... Give us a comment about self-esteem and the shidduch process. Shidduchim. A lot of young women and men are searching for their mate, and yet they find it very difficult. How do they maintain self-esteem during the shidduch process? Well, let me tell you, uh, uh, and first of all, an example that this brings to mind, okay? Uh, I had a patient who uh, I found about uh, getting information about him. I found out that uh, whenever he dated, the date started off very great, and always ended up 
as a bust, always ended up in a disaster. And when this continued time after time after time, he finally gave up, realizing, as he felt, that he could not be attractive to any woman. When his best friend was drafted to Vietnam, his friend said to him, look, while I'm gone, do me a favor, uh, take my uh, girl out and give her a good time. What happened with this person is because he felt himself to be unlikable as he was or as he thought he was. Whenever he went on a, on a date, he would try to impress the young woman. He would try to put on a facade because he thought that what was beneath that facade was uh, unlikable. And because he was so phony and artificial, it never went anywhere. However, this time, when he took his friend's girl out to give a show and go time as a favor to his friend, he had no intention at all of impressing her because he couldn't care what she thought about him. So he was perfectly relaxed. And what happened was she fell in love with him. So being yourself. So I think that what happens that uh, people who are on Shadokim, if they don't feel likable about themselves, they go in with a defensive attitude. Um, and particularly, if it turns out that they meet somebody, a young man or a young woman, and there is no attraction at the first, uh, at the first time, instead of concluding, well, this young man didn't like I wasn't attracted to him, uh, or this young woman, I, uh, I wasn't attracted to her. They make a generalization. Uh, I am not attracted, uh, attractive to anyone. And they conclude after the first, and, and they come at it with a sense of utility, and of course a great deal of defensiveness, which just stands in the way of the relationship. So working on self-esteem can help in the shidduch process as well? It can help with everything. Robert Trusky, thank you so much for joining us. My hope pleasure. Ha- hope to have you back on the program again. Okay. Thank you. Good night.